Around the world, more than 80 women have accused Peter Nygaard of crimes ranging from rape to sex trafficking. He far exceeds Jeffrey Epstein. He far exceeds Bill Cosby. He exceeds anything that I think our world has seen so far. A pattern of predatory behavior spanning half a century. Nygaard denies it all. But now he faces criminal charges. If this were a poor man, he would have been in jail decades ago. He is hid in plain sight. Evil by Design, available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The Canadian government's efforts to cut down on the amount of plastic we use and take out containers, plastic bags and straws have hit a major roadblock. Last week, a federal court struck down the government's designation of all plastic items as toxic. The judge said the label went too far and was unconstitutional. The court's decision now puts the government's ban on single-use plastics in serious danger. And it came just as countries gathered in Kenya to negotiate a global treaty on plastics. Tony Walker has studied plastic pollution for nearly three decades. He's a professor in the School of Resource and Environmental Studies at Dalhousie University in Halifax. Tony, good morning. Yeah, hi. Good morning, Matt. You surprised by the court's decision? I am, um, but um, it has actually been something which has been uh, in the courts for a couple of years. Um, so, uh, well, a couple of years ago, the uh, Responsible Plastic Use Coalition, comprising of Dow Chemicals, uh, Imperial Oil and Nova Chemicals, um, started to take legal action when the government first announced that it was going to target uh, single-use plastic items mm. uh, in, in this manner. That coalition, um, we asked them to be on the program. They declined uh, our request to be here. But in court, their lawyer said that they were taking issue with how broad the government's ban was. The lawyer, Jennifer Dana, he said, the vast majority of items listed as toxic by this order don't even enter the environment as litter, let alone cause harm. What do you make of that? Well, I beg to differ. Um, so, in fact, uh, there's at least 30 years worth of data um, from the Great Canadian Shoreline Cleanup and then the International uh, Ocean Cleanup, um, you know, from citizen science, uh, scientists. And a lot of this data, the top 12 dirty items or Canada's dirty dozen, if you will, comprise many of these items that have already been listed by the, uh, the federal government. I get their position, certainly not speaking on behalf of, of this coalition, but reading what was presented in court and reading their arguments, their issue seems to be whether it's accurate to classify all plastic as toxic. I mean, we are surrounded by plastic products. And their point is, when it comes to overreach, you're including everything from, in their words, toothbrushes to medical instruments in hospitals. That they, they, they are, they're plastic, but they're not waste. Is that a fair, do you understand where they're coming from there? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I would agree um, partially uh, with that statement. But what they're, uh, I guess that the statement really doesn't include the fact that whilst a lot of these items in use are not leaching those, uh, those chemicals. And I, I will actually point out that plastics is an umbrella term for many polymers uh, and those many polymers comprise at least 16,000 chemicals according to a recent United Nations Environment Programme report that, that came out earlier this year and over 3,200 of those are known to be harmful and known to be toxic. So whilst they claim that these items during use are not leaching 
chemical compounds. We don't actually know what they contain. Um, none of this information is dis, uh, disclosed. And uh, what the, their statements are probably uh, lacking, I haven't read into the details of, uh, of the statements from the court decision, is they're probably not taken into account once they enter the environment and they continue to leach those chemicals. Again, we don't know which specific chemicals are in there. Some may be toxic, some, some perhaps aren't. Uh, but until they disclose what's in those products, um, I think this is why the Canadian government used a, uh, a broad terminology like this, because we, there's still so much uncertainty. The judge says that the terminology is far too broad. And so the, the government may, the federal environment minister says that, that the government may look at an appeal. In the meantime, do you expect a narrowing of that definition? Well, it could be um, harmful, for example. I mean, um, a plastic straw made by one company can contain, you know, maybe a dozen chemicals. And then a straw made by another company may include a dozen different chemicals, some of which may be toxic. Again, so, you know, straws have to be classified because it's a, a physical item. But we still don't know what uh, constitutes uh, the chemicals or the chemical compounds in that straw. And if the term is change from toxic to say something perhaps like harmful, then that is still, that stands true. Um, you know, straws ingested by uh, wildlife still causes death or, uh, or, or, you know, or, 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 or chronic um, injury over time. And so that, uh, that the term harmful would still be appropriate. How do you think consumers feel about this? Where are we as consumers now? when it comes to this? Have we changed our behavior when it comes to the use of single-use plastics? Many have. And in fact, uh, just before the uh, federal announcement back in 2019, I believe it was first announced in, in June 2019. Remember those glory days before COVID when many countries around the world were implementing both regional and national bans on single-use plastic bags? Prince Edward Island was the first province in Canada to do so. And that was in 2019. Um, but, uh, yeah, consumers, we, uh, we, we serve, we, myself and other researchers here in at Dalhousie conducted a survey of over a thousand Canadians and they were fully supportive of a single use plastic ban. Um, overwhelmingly, in fact, it was about 94% of Canadians in all provinces and territories, uh, were supportive. Um, so yeah. There is uh, there's wide uh, widespread public support for this. The pushback seems to be coming from a couple of different places. One is, I was reading that something like 98% of single-use plastics are derived from fossil fuels. The Premier of Alberta, Daniel Smith, in the announcement of the judge's ruling, tweeted out, um, Alberta wins again. Uh, what do you make of, of that response? When it comes to, there are industries that have a vested interest in continuing to produce these plastics. Exactly. And uh, yeah, uh, so like a conflict of interest would actually be uh, something that uh, needs to be on the table and transparent. So, for example, um, are these organizations, are the governments uh, in these regions where they do heavily rely on uh, extraction of petroleum products that ultimately then, as you as your statement made, uh, 98 to 90 percent of, of current plastics are derived from fossil fuels. So they have a vested interest. There is a conflict of interest. Um, and they're probably only thinking about uh, profits or impacts to profits if these uh, you know federal announcements or regulations basically hurt their bottom line. The industry says that the focus should be on recycling 
on what, what is known as circularity. Um, that we use the plastics, we put them in the recycling bin, they go off, they are made into plastics again, and there's no new plastics introduced to the system. Is that a way out of the plastic pollution crisis that we might face? Unfortunately not. Um, it's not really working. And there's no one silver bullet. Uh, you know, I'm using air quotes now, uh, but recycling isn't working. What do you mean it's not working? Yeah. I mean, I, the recycling bin well, is filled. Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful, isn't it? I've, I'm looking at one right now here in my kitchen, uh, and that's also full, goes out on Wednesday. But the vast, so the vast majority of that isn't actually recycled. And so the, the the most latest, well, the most recent data that we have nationally in Canada is between nine and eleven percent is actually recycled, and that really doesn't take account of how often we can recycle, how many more times we recycle it after that first attempt. Where, where does where does uh, the rest of the plastic in the recycling bin end up if it's not being recycled? Yeah, so that's another another question. It probably enters the uh, the global plastic waste trade, and so. Prior to 2018, and I mentioned 2018 because that uh, really signals a, a global uh, knee-jerk reaction to China's decision to ban imports of plastic waste mm. from high-income countries like Canada, US, the rest of Europe. Um, and so that left uh, high-income countries like ourselves uh, scrambling for uh, uh, you know, end markets for our recycled waste, and much. And I have to, I have to uh, make this statement, but a lot of the waste actually wasn't clean. It, it wasn't high value, and this is why these single-use plastic items have been uh, deemed, um, uh, you know, to be banned on the list because very few of them are actually recycled. I'd mentioned that uh, Canada and countries around the world have been negotiating the terms of a new plastic treaty. What would an international treaty, when it comes to the use of plastics, do? Well, um, first of all, uh, what it needs to do is be legally binding uh, so we don't have a, a Paris for plastics uh, where individual countries take it on board to to do whatever they want really without any uh, consequences or uh you know impacts from other countries like trade impacts and so what it really needs to do is tackle the plastic pollution problem at source and what i mean by that is having time bound caps on production at the moment globally we're producing over 400 million metric tons per year and um, 300 million metric tons is ending up as waste. And so it, best estimates, even if we're re recycling 9% of that, genuinely recycling 9% of that, that leaves an awful amount of plastic in the environment. Whether it's landfills, if uh, if we're here in, in Canada, or um, if we do export it to countries with, that lacking waste management infrastructure, um, assuming it's uh, contaminated and, and not capable of being recycled, then it's it's probably burnt. Um, and in fact, there are many cases around the world where there's open pit burning of plastics, releasing atmospheric uh, toxins like dioxins and furans. And so at these talks, what was Canada's position? Canada's position is is fantastic. Uh, we're members of, we're, Canada's one of 62 countries in the high ambition coalition, and they are pushing, aiming for a very stringent and uh, robust, legally binding uh, global plastics treaty. But unfortunately, even at the global level, we're actually see, seeing a similar situation play out um, where there's... Um, where there's another organization 
Um, and it's called the like, well, the latest name is like-minded group of countries. And again, there's no surprises. They're all uh, petroleum-based economies uh, led by Saudi Arabia, Russia, and um, Iran. And they're pushing for um, uh, downstream measures such as recycling and waste management. But they still want to continue that uh, unsustainable uh, global plastics uh, production. Uh, that that I mentioned earlier. The next round of plastic treaty talks are going to be in April in Ottawa. Before I let you go, I mean, people think of you know, the images of the giant blob of plastic floating in the ocean. Is your sense that we're going to, at those talks, but just broadly, are we going to be able to get a handle on this? Are we going to be able to figure out a way to ensure that the plastic that we use doesn't end up in the natural world? Well, we have to because we can't continue uh, as business as usual. I mean, it's only taken uh, roughly 100 years since uh, the first polymers were, were invented and, the, you know, 70 years since decent records of, uh, of production began. And so here we are with uh, this much waste in the oceans, in the soil, in the environment, in the air that we breathe. Um, and so we can't continue uh, with the current status quo. Um, so to your point, even if the Global Plastics Treaty does uh, achieve uh, caps on global production, we still need to deal with the legacy pollution, which you're already talking about in the ocean. And whilst there are solutions or at least strategies uh, attempting to go and clean that up, they've not really been carefully tested. And there's evidence now uh, to suggest that some of these strategies are actually also causing harm to wildlife because they're having unintended consequences and scooping up plastic trash floating in the ocean also ends up with um, entangling uh, wildlife that's uh, also uh, in that surface layer of ocean. What a mess. Tony, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Tony Walker, Cheers. professor in the School for Resource and Environmental Studies at Dalhousie University in Halifax. As I mentioned, we did ask for an interview with somebody from the Responsible Plastic Use Coalition. That's the non-for-profit corpor uh, corporation that's made up of companies from the plastics industry that do business in Canada, as well as Dow Chemical Canada, Nova Chemicals Corporation, Imperial Oil. They declined our request to uh, speak on the radio, did send us a brief statement. It reads, in part, we believe the federal government and industry can work collaboratively to reduce plastic waste. We look forward to developing solutions together, end quote. I'm speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. James Wakibia is a plastic waste activist and photographer in Kenya. He took part in the talks on the Global Plastic Treaty that ended there yesterday. And he's widely credited with pushing the Kenyan government to ban plastic bags in 2017. He is in Nukuru, Kenya. James, hello to you. Hi, hi. Happy How, to be talking to you. Glad to have you. How productive do you think the talks were in Kenya around a plastic treaty? 
I think initially they were productive, but uh, until yesterday when things, uh, I think, went way, way haywire because of an interference or derailment from uh, oil-producing countries, I also think uh, there might be some input from uh, petrochemical companies. So it was going on well. They, they called it the Nairobi spirit was good until something uh, didn't come out uh, right at the end of the day. Mm. You've been doing this work for a long time. How did you get started focusing on plastic waste in your country? Well, I think I got annoyed about uh, what I saw. I saw uh, our environment uh, polluted with a lot of plastics. Everywhere I went, uh, I saw plastics clinging on trees, in drains, on uh, in sewage lines. It was a menace. So I got uh, annoyed about it, and I thought about talking about it, and uh, maybe I could have brought some influence and and it changed and actually that happened and Kenya led to I did lead the campaign that led to ban on plastic bags in Kenya. How did you manage to do that? How did you manage to get Kenya to ban plastic bags? Well, it's a long story, but I campaigned since, I think, 2012 to 2017 through online campaigns uh, in the streets with placards, uh, with taking a lot of all documenting plastic pollutions and uh, ultimately being able to reach the Minister for Environment in the Republic of Kenya, who was uh, responsible and uh, very conscious about what was happening. And she indeed uh, passed the ban on plastic bags in 2017. How did people respond? How did Kenyans respond to the ban? I think Kenyans were excited. Many who interacted with me, you know, said that uh, the ban was important because our environment was getting deteriorated, was deteriorating. It was having a lot of plastics and uh, we needed to do something. So many appreciated the ban. Of course, many more were not excited. They say they have lost their business companies say they were going to close down, jobs were going to be lost and all that. But ultimately, I think the bigger number was happy that the ban came because today the streets are much better, the environment is much cleaner, we have less plastics in the environment. I saw a photo of you taking a picture and you were, you're up to your waist in, a, like it looks like a sea of plastic, a pond of plastic, and you're taking photos. Can you describe some of the things that you have seen in the work that you've done? I think I've seen so much. Sometimes I work in the landfills or in dump sites where I see our way of, uh, you know, consuming and uh, being wasteful. I think we are too wasteful. We are, you know, we, the amounts of plastics that we are, we are using and uh, throwing away are humongous. And we cannot even recycle all these things. I think the industry narrative that recycling is working is just a big lie to try and show the consumer that something is working. Well, it's not. This dumping site that I've been to, I'll create a picture that uh, we are consuming in a way that is not sustainable. And, our, and the plastics we use are and will stay in the environment for a long time. Therefore, we need action. We need uh, laws and treaties to be able to address this, uh, this grave problem. It was horrifying, that picture. I mean, because the, the range of things that are there, there's shoes, there's uh, look like shampoo bottles. There are, it, it just, it, it's a huge range of, of, of garbage that is just floating away in, the, in this area. Yeah, you can see anything from clothes, uh, shoes, all these are made of plastics. It's uh, really easy now. It's almost impossible to find something that is not made from plastic. Even the, mo- the clothes that we wear today, most of them are made from 
from plastics, you know, polyester, the drink bottles we are using, the packaging, all the packaging, almost all, all of it, 100% is made from plastic. Then we're having a mountain of plastic everywhere we go. In such uh, landfills, you'll be shocked by the immense uh, amounts of plastics there. It's not just those, those finished products, though. You were chairing a session at those treaty talks about plastic pellet pollution. What are the pellets? Okay, pellets are the feedstocks or, or they are the building block for plastics. They are tiny round uh, plastics that are made in a way or all packaged together and they can be shipped to a country or to some industry to be able to produce plastic products, say chairs, packaging and, uh, and, and such a things. And the problem with these things is that they're easy to escape into the environment because they are very tiny. They're almost like microplastics. Mm. And uh, I think a few years ago, we had an accident in Sri Lanka where thousands of metric tons of uh, those pellets were released into this and uh, I think they were not even a- the people there were not even able to collect them from the sea because it's so impossible. They are so literal. And these are things that they they manage to come off of ships that are sailing through the sea and 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 end up in the ocean. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, ultimately the the treaty need the treaty needs to answer or to address such issues of uh, pellet pollution because. It, you know, the handling and transportation could lead to disasters and the disasters are, you know, we cannot be able to fix them. We cannot be able to collect pellets that are littering our environment because they are so tiny they can be ingested by, by wildlife and also they can end up in our bodies. And to your point, this goes back to the issue of how much plastic we're actually producing in the first place. Uh, we're producing a lot of plastic. Mm. I think, uh, as I mentioned, it's... Um, Almost everything that we're making today has some plastic in it. There are people, and you see this in the global south, whose job it is in many ways to pick through plastic. How do they fit into this conversation? Yeah, they are called the worst speakers or people who who are working in the landfills and in dumping sites, collecting uh, plastics and other material and mostly plastics. And uh, in the few weeks uh, leading to the plastics uh, INC3, plastics treaty discussions in Nairobi, they have been coming together to champion for what they're calling a just transition because I think they have been the fuel or the driving force to recycling, but they have been put aside. So it is important important that the world listens to their voice. It's important that they are put on the table so that they, you know, they, they are very important players in a plastic value chain. And it is important they are put there so that once these plastics are removed from the, from the environment and from the dumping site, they're not left without uh, nothing on the table. What, what is their job, the, the waste pickers? What are they, what are they actually doing? So we speakers later go to the landfill or into the streets, they collect plastics and then they take those plastics to recycling companies or they sell those plastics to recycling companies. Therefore, facilitating or making possible recycling without them. Even the industry's, uh, you know, noise that they are recycling plastics, you know, it, it wouldn't be possible because these people, the waste speakers are the ones that make recycling possible. And so... If you were to reduce the amount of plastic that you're creating, the livelihoods of those people who are picking through the landfills for that plastic, their livelihoods would be impacted as well. 
Definitely to be affected. That's why they're calling for a just transition so that uh, their plight can be addressed so that maybe we could have a fund, a national fund, a UN fund that will address their issues, you know, because they are more of a marginalized community. They are poor. They cannot uh, be put together with other people because of their, you know, their backgrounds. They are very poor. These people, you know, going to the landfill is not uh, for everybody. It's a, it's a very difficult job going there picking with your bare hands from um, among us the you know, a concussion of mixed and sometimes toxic waste. It's not an easy job. Before I let you go, what do you think the world should take from what you accomplished in Kenya? You were able to help change the conversation and have plastic bags eliminated in that country. So what should people learn from what you did? I think people should learn that we all have a responsibility to this planet. We should not just consume. We also need to think about how we consume. And also we need to think how we can protect our environment through using less plastics. I always say less plastic is fantastic. Less plastic is fantastic, but at the same time, it is everywhere. Are you optimistic that we can get to the less plastic, fantastic world that you dream of? I want to be optimistic that um, someday we'll have less plastic, but it's uh, unfortunate that we have even uh, plastic in our bodies. We have, we, we, it's not just in the environment, mm. but it's also in our bodies. So uh, my call for less plastic is fantastic. It's really uh, a dream, and I hope someday, maybe a few years, we'll have a treaty that will be able to cut down on uh, plastics. Great to talk to you about the work that you have done and continue to do. James, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. James Wakibia is an environmental campaigner and a photographer in Kenya. We reached him in Nukuru, Kenya. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.